Okay, we are. Well, we're actually still in the studio,、um, but we're. This is the Ordinary Courage podcast、um, with your host Vinny Shabriel, and today in the studio, I'm super excited to、uh, announce that we have Dr. Monty Gosh in the studio today. And so,、um, Monty, Dr. Monty Gosh, is an internist and addiction specialist who works at the University Alberta Hospital in Edmonton as an internist, as well as the Sheldon Schumer and Rocky View Hospitals doing addiction medicine here in Calgary.、Uh, he works with multiple community-based not-for-profit organizations to provide support for marginalized populations. Uh, including the Alex and the Calgary Drop-in Center, he is an assistant clinical professor professor at both the University of Alberta and the University of Calgary. And Dr. Montegosh is heavily involved with the provincial policy building in Alberta, as well as with research, and is the recipient or co-recipient of grants from Alberta Innovates. Uh, P R I H S. Like this is going on and on. I apologize. I should probably stop. Alberta Health. I'm not done, Monty. I'm going to finish this thing. And the Canadian Institute of Health Research. You're like a busy guy, and so it's so it's all good. He also currently co-chairs the provincial AHS task force for isolation shelter spaces, helping to support clients with no fixed address during the COVID crisis. Dr. Montegosh also leads and co-leads multiple COVID-related initiatives, both federally and provincially. That was a mouthful. <laughs> so it's awesome to have you in the studio. I was going to make a little bit of a personal joke, but I, I <laughs> I'm like, wow. You know, and it's funny because you don't think that's that lengthy when I know you, when you type I, it up, and then、yeah. hearing you say it, I'm like, oh god, that sounds <laughs> it's way too long. I should have cut it back.、Uh, but but you know, most importantly, I want to say I'm your friend, and I appreciate you、Aww. having me here today to talk. You're so awesome. Oh, yes, I'm. Are you? Oh, Monty, thank you. Yeah, I I agree. I I'm so happy to you just、You're、sharing I, some love on the way. I totally. I'm I'm feeling the love. I'm feeling the love. Okay, so I I know that when you and I talked a few days ago,、um, there's a few things that we wanted to get out and talk about. But I and just before we started recording,、um, I want I want to start with just. Because obviously everyone knows now, right?、Mm-hmm. You're a doctor. You're. This is the field that you're in. Like you, I know how busy you are.、Um, so just even the fact of you being here tonight is really truly amazing, and I'm so grateful to have you here. But it's you're you are fully immersed in your work and in what you do and. I know every time we talk and or every time we meet or whatever, it's just this is just all you are. Like it's it's all encompassing for you. And before we got started, I I just you know what I I want I what I want everyone to know is why. Why why do you do what you do? You know that's a really good question, and I, I I've you know. 
it's just something that I'm passionate about, and I don't know how to say it. It's it's, it's part of my soul and my being, and and you know, and I've reflected on this a few times, and I've thought about how did I get involved in this scene and sector, and uh, and and I got to say, from from medical school, even before medical school, I, was, I always wanted to do what's called global health, mm-hmm. and that's where you go to other nations and you provide support, you do you know medical work in in, in third world countries like India or or other places, right, South mm-hmm. America, and uh, you know, the, the thought is that you can't really do that here in Canada because we're a, a first world nation. Mm-hmm. You know, we have all these supports available here in this nation of ours and, uh, you can't really do the same level of work, but that's not true. Uh, mm-hmm. one of my mentors actually opened my eyes to that and he, he demonstrated and showed me that there's just so much need in our communities whether it's uh, with our vulnerable populations, those who experience homelessness, severe mental health concerns, addictions, mm-hmm. or whether it's people who live on indigenous reserves, rural communities who can't access care. Mm-hmm. There's a, a large need. And uh, and my mentor was like, you know what? Use all that energy that you have towards third world nations and try to focus on home and see what you can do here. And and wow. that's what kind of got me down this path of working with this population group. And it's mm-hmm. and 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 Venetia, like it's it's exciting work on my end. It's it's a confluence of of you know of of medical issues, uh, ethical issues, mm-hmm. uh, lots of philosophical controversies and differences. Um, there's you know there's uh, you add in a bit of 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 you know lack of research and a lot mm-hmm. of unknowns in this area. Um, but then you also understand that like 20% of this population suffers from addiction, mental health concerns. And so it's a very important area that's not, you know, that's not highlighted enough. You know, it's, it's it, like the stigma is apparent right throughout, whether it's in, in the research field, whether it's for people on the streets, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, it, it's there, but, uh, but that's why I'm here, right? It, it's, mm-hmm. it's an interesting field. There's lots of things to take care of. There's lots of things to address mm-hmm. uh, and resolve and push forward. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You you mentioned twenty percent of our population is dealing with addiction and mental health. Do you do you believe that that number is accurate? You know, good question. We can only trust what the epidemiologists show us, but I, I, I agree it's probably higher. And it all depends on what you define as a mental health concern or what you define as an addiction. Okay, could you define those for us? I think a clinical addiction yeah. uh, based off of the DSM-5 criteria is usually mm-hmm. what we call a substance use disorder. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think if you follow that criteria and if you follow the classic criteria, again, of the DSM-5 for mm-hmm. a mental health diagnosis, mm-hmm. I think you probably hit around 20%. And I, you know, and I, I don't know the stats off the top of my head, to yeah, be honest with yeah. you. Uh, but I think if you loosely define it or if you talk about how addiction mental health has impacted someone's life mm-hmm. it's a lot higher whether yeah. it's the personal life on their own whether they or if it's someone else's addiction that's affected themselves as well mm-hmm. um i think that number would be higher so i guess the impact of addiction and mental health probably permeates more than that 20 percent by far mm-hmm. maybe mm-hmm. maybe i mean i'm just guessing here mm-hmm. 40 to 50 percent of our population has been touched by an addiction or mental health concern yeah, yeah, I yeah, I totally agree. I know um when we were discussing like one of the things that I wanted I was hoping that we could bring to the table when um is COVID. 
mm-hmm. and how COVID um, is impacting that realm, that, you know, addiction, mental health. And so I'd like to jump in there if we can. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, that's uh, it's seems to be my my focus right now. In the last yeah. six months, has really been how to navigate those two crises because it mm-hmm. is two crises, right? We have an ongoing issue with addiction, mm-hmm. which is worsened because of the fentanyl crisis, mm-hmm. but now we have this other crisis that's going on as well with COVID, mm-hmm. and these two storms, if you may, are merging right now uh, throughout North America, and it's it's quite scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so where do we start? <laughs> well, just, I guess, uh, um, well, one, so what, what are some of the impacts that you're seeing? Um, and then I also would like to, like, where do we go from here? How, how do we navigate this situation? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, there, there's several impacts that I'm seeing right okay. now. Um, and it's, you know, oddly, some of it is, is sort of contradictory. Um, and, and I think things are evolving as, mm-hmm. as we move along. Um, and, and so I think the assumption everyone made was that when COVID hit was because of physical distancing and self-isolation, mm-hmm. because we're placing ourselves at home, avoiding contact with family, friends, uh, our, our structures, our social structures that provide us with resiliency mm-hmm. for our own mental health and addiction concerns. The thought was that things would get worse for everyone. And that is true to mm-hmm. a certain extent, but what's also oddly happened is that's actually helped a lot of people who already had existing addiction and mental health concerns. And again, focusing on addiction specifically, I shouldn't really mm-hmm. comment on the mental health piece per se, mm-hmm. but with addiction in particular, I've heard from my clients that they no longer see the friends that they used to sub- that they used to use substances with. They're able to maintain their uh, their recovery because they're not triggered as much anymore. Because they're not driving past the liquor store. They're not hanging out with that social circle that mm-hmm. they used to use with. They're not um, dealing with stress at work as much anymore. Right. So there's a cohort that's done really well. Uh, on the flip side, of course, as well, there is a cohort that's done poorly. Mm-hmm. There's, there's those that are in recovery that now are like, oh, you know, that are dealing with the stress of not seeing their coworkers the stress of not being a part of the community that they're a part of, mm-hmm. the stress of feeling alone, isolated, and depressed. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I, I find it fascinating that there's these two different facets and these two alternative outcomes that have come out from the crises. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so again, I, I find it very, very interesting. And, and so I, what I think it goes to show is that we have to be very... Um, tailored in our approach to this situation with each client individually. Because mm-hmm. uh, again, some clients are doing well and some clients are doing poorly. It's hard to predict who will do what. Yeah, yeah. So how, when you say that you're like tailoring, what what does that look like? What what if? Yeah, touching base with the clients and seeing what their needs are. So like if a client says, you know what, I'm doing really well with my addiction concerns, mm-hmm. that this has been a fantastic thing for me, that I'm really engaged in my own recovery, then you support them on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they're having to go back to work, such as with the schools, for example, mm-hmm. opening up and then, and then teachers going back. I've had a couple of teachers who are like, I'm worried about going back. I'm worried that it's going to trigger my stress and it's going to ultimately trigger my addiction again. Mm-hmm. We work on tools to deal with that, mm-hmm. right? We work on tools to be able to deal with the triggers. You know, we'll do cognitive behavioral therapy. We'll work through scenarios, 
uh, in, in our sessions to deal with this. Uh, and then on the, on the flip side, if they already are dealing with their addiction concerns, it's worsened because of this. It's about getting engaged with their community. So let's get you on Zoom sessions. Mm-hmm. with 12-step programming mm-hmm. uh, let's get you to talk things over with your family like how when was the last time you had a you know like communicated with your family mm-hmm. um when was the last time you did something fun mm-hmm. are you spending all your time indoors are you actually going outside to experience the the pleasant weather mm-hmm. uh so determining ways to for these individuals to work through their 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 addiction their their coping Mm-hmm. of the covid situation if you may. Mm-hmm. Have you have you seen like an increase in because I know like you know we're kind of seeing through social media and the news and stuff like that an increase in overdoses um through covid like is that your so my impression? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it is to a certain extent. So like um so initially there was a lull in overdoses in our province mm-hmm. uh and and that was just when COVID started to hit, uh, and there was several thoughts as to why this was happening. One thought process was that the uh, the distribution, and we're again very focused on opioids here. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's other substances too, yeah. Uh, but with opioids and maybe meth to a certain extent, uh, the the borders were closed between the United States and Canada. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were finding it increasingly difficult to transport these substances across the border. Um, there was a consequence from some, from some of that, that some faulty drugs are being manufactured within our own province, mm-hmm. causing mm-hmm. problems. But on the flip side, there is also a, a decrease in the amount of substance coming through and, and therefore, uh, people are having to rely on other ways to get their, their fix. And, and many were entering treatment because they just couldn't find anything else that was available to them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so that, that was one consequence. What we've also seen now, especially as things have gone on, is that there's been a huge spike in overdoses uh, again. And so in Edmonton in particular, there's been a huge spike in, in overdoses. Uh, I don't have the data in front of me right now, mm-hmm. but there has been a marked increase in comparison to where things were last year at the same time period. Okay. And one can only speculate that this is, again, because people are isolating, uh, because uh, the drug supply is is tainted. Mm-hmm. Uh, with with artificial substances like fentanyl, um, and so uh, the next big question is how do we deal with this, mm-hmm. and and that's a tough one, um, especially because of COVID. Again, okay, and COVID has caused structural issues in our society. Um, so let's take our healthcare system for example, mm-hmm. right? So we uh, before had lots of we had a reasonable amount of resources to provide support for clients. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were, we weren't perfect by any means, but mm-hmm. they were there. Uh, the, the resources that are already exist are now more difficult to access. Why are they difficult to access? Cause we are not seeing clients physically anymore. You mm-hmm. can't come to a facility to see us. You have to phone in an appointment. Uh, some people don't have phones. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. some people are afraid to go to the emergency departments to get seen for their addiction concerns because they're afraid of getting exposed to COVID. Mm-hmm. So what do they do? They just stay home and they cope. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, doctors are only working part time. Uh, there's, you know, there's, uh, the treatment facilities themselves are at, at half capacity because mm-hmm. of physical distancing. So our, our, our detox centers are at half capacity. Uh, treatment yeah. facilities such as uh, Fresh Start Poundmakers, for example, have mm-hmm. had to decrease their capacity to a certain extent uh, to deal with again with with these issues, and so mm-hmm. there's more longer there's there's longer wait times. Um, 
supervised consumption services there's only there's they only allow a certain number of people to come in because they have to physically space them mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right so again it's it's caused uh, an issue with our healthcare structure mm-hmm. uh, in terms of access to supports um, as I mentioned earlier it's caused issues with our social structure because we know that social structure helps impact addiction too mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. Uh, it's helped it's affected the psyche of individuals uh, in terms of dealing with medications and providing medications for people, people are having difficulties going to the pharmacy now. They don't have, they're afraid of using public transit. They're, uh, they're afraid of getting drugs from the pharmacists. Uh, pharmacists can't deliver medications all the time. Uh, so all of these things wow. have sort of, yeah. have, have sort of um, come to a head mm-hmm. and are much more highlighted now than they were before. Um, one thing to also mention is that people who have substance use concerns uh, or addiction also are at a higher risk of complications from COVID. Um, so we know that people who use substances have a higher rate of smoking, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Smoking cigarettes. Smoking cigarettes causes problems for the lungs um, and, and and therefore they're at a higher risk of having a higher mortality or higher rates of complications mm-hmm. because of COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that COVID likes to cause like, I mean, some people go well and do well with COVID. They're, they're asymptomatic. But those who don't do well typically have uh, other comorbidities, right? Um, and these do include things like obesity, smoking history, poor lung function. Uh, we know that opioids, for example, reduces your immunity in your mm-hmm, immune system. Mm-hmm. And so you're, you're probably at a higher risk of having issues with COVID um, and, and have, having higher, I should say, complications from COVID. Um, methamphetamines causes poor nutrition poor nutrition again causes you to be more susceptible for complications from covid um there's you know if you have alcohol use concerns Mm -hmm. uh you 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 know you can fry your bone marrow you fry your liver if you have liver cirrhosis you're at a higher risk of of having issues with covid again so um, addiction can worsen your overall outcomes Mm -hmm. if you if you do contract covid Wow. Um, okay, so how do you th- like? So what's what what are we doing, or what can like what what's being put into place now? Because we're, I mean, we're what are we six months into this? Mm-hmm. Six or so months into this, like it, it's you know what I mean. It's not it's not ending anytime soon, soon, right? So this is an ongoing issue that we need to figure out how to navigate so what what are we, like what are we what are we going to do like even some of these social structures that you're talking about you know we're half capacity for treatment centers and like okay how do we manage how do we what yeah yeah no it's a tough one um, so like, I mean, my approach to this is that, uh, you know, this is an opportunity for people to really get in, ingrained in their own, in their own recovery if they can. Mm-hmm. Um, so for example, if, uh, if they are already in recovery, they're not using substances, mm-hmm. uh, creating more robust supports around you is important. So, um, uh, like, so that social, so the way we sort of treat addiction the way we should be treating it is is the biological, psychological, social, and then spiritual aspects of addiction. Mm-hmm. And, and spiritual part is controversial a bit, but 
but the biological piece, for example, like, you know, uh, make sure your health is good. Mm-hmm. Make sure that, you know, if you have cravings, take care of yourself with, with, you know, pharmacotherapy. Talk to your doctor about your concerns, your psychosocial piece. Make sure your mental health is okay. Check in with friends, check in with people you care about. Maintain your resiliency structures because there's different intrinsic factors to build resiliency off of mm-hmm. and make sure that those are intact and that you're taking care of yourself. Because, you you know, if you take care of yourself, you're not dealing with stress, you're not dealing with your triggers, you're not dealing with the factors that sometimes you that sometimes that cause you to use mm-hmm. is important, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so people who are struggling, I tell them to like join group sessions online because group sessions have all pivoted online, whether it's smart 12-step programming, yeah. Yeah. Uh, whether it's addiction counseling as a group, all of these things can be done online still, mm-hmm. whether it's connecting with health services online. Uh, whether it's like the distress center, you know, your physician, those are still available as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the spiritual aspect is just taking care of yourself spiritually, whether that's meditation, dealing with nature. I mean, you can't really go to church right now or, or, or temple or mosque or, mm-hmm. uh, but, but, you know, somehow engaging with whatever spirituality means with you is important. Mm-hmm. So again, building a strong foundation to maintain recovery is very, very important. Um, for those who are, 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 yeah, like again, already in recovery, maintaining what makes you keep yourself in recovery is important. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, again, like what have you done so far that's been successful? How can you pivot it during this time of COVID to keep managing, mm-hmm. uh, at, at, you know, at this time? And then last but not least, uh, the the people that I think we often forget about is those who are not in recovery, yeah. who are highly vulnerable um for them i tell them to try to avoid using a loan if you can still call a friend uh, you know be on a phone line uh have a narcan kit available tell someone you're using mm-hmm. you know you might be afraid of going to the supervised consumption site if you're still using but um but figure out other ways within your community and your context to stay safe while you're using because we want you to be alive still mm-hmm. yeah absolutely um I, I, so, I mean, those are like, obviously those are, those are all amazing. And I, I understand all of that. Um, and I know it's probably kind of hard to predict. I mean, no one will, can really know what the outcome of this is going to look like. Mm -hmm. Um, but I mean, some of this, stuff is it's i mean it it seems like it it might be okay temporarily but how do you know what i mean like the the fallout from this is it can be catastrophic i agree like it it, it comes in like i mean you can only be online so much yeah you know absolutely before you get fatigued totally 100 percent. i and and this is a question that i i just don't have the answer to like mm-hmm. how do we deal with this i think everyone's going to deal with it on their own in their own way mm-hmm. um you know again keeping connected as best you can with your family mm-hmm. with your friends mm-hmm. but also being cautious of the fact that you know covid is a real risk mm-hmm. that it's you know it's easy to transmit and that, you know, there's a balance that needs to be struck. And that balance is different for everyone. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, but it is a real situation that needs to be navigated through. And, and it, yeah, it's hard to, hard to say what's right and what's wrong. I, yeah, no, and I, I know that too. Like, I know that 
obviously we're we're well we're in uncharted territory really mm-hmm. you know like especially too with where things are at you know with um just with, already with the crisis that we were already dealing with right when it comes to the opioids and fentanyl and things like that like we were already it was already so such a huge issue to mm-hmm. be trying to you know f- for for undertaking you know so um like I, I so there were some other areas too that i i wanted to to get into with you and so just some of the other work that you're involved in um i know this is a little bit of a probably like a little bit of a controversial uh topic but just the whole you know, recovery and harm reduction, because um, I know that you're involved in some of that as well. And mm-hmm. so can you just share a little bit about just some of the initiatives that you have going on? And yeah, hundred uh, like, uh, um, percent. And and I can even put into the context of COVID as well. Yeah, like, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I mean, where? Yeah, you're right. Con- like there is some controversy regarding mm-hmm. harm reduction, recovery, and. Uh, uh, for many of us, it's it's all about a balanced approach, mm-hmm. w- which lets the client take charge of where they want to be and what they want, and um, and that's been the philosophy that that I've had all the time is that you meet the client where they're at, mm-hmm. and you let them guide the conversation as to where they want to be at, mm-hmm. and and um, and that really s- goes in line with 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 12-step programming, for example, right? Like mm-hmm. uh, one of the big pieces to 12-step programming is that, you know, you might not have to stop using substances, but you have to want to stop, right? You want to, you would want to have that, that, uh, that feeling of getting better. And so it doesn't preclude you from still using uh, as long as you're using safely. And from my stance, it's all about quality of life as well. Like you want to provide the best quality of life for people. Mm-hmm. that's the key, right? Mm-hmm. If someone's quality of life is defined by them using substances on a regular basis, and that's what makes them happy and being in recovery will not make them happy. What I want to make sure is that they have a good quality of life regardless. So like that, that they use safely, that they don't overdose, they don't, you know, uh, contract some horrible illness secondary to their substance use. Um, and if their goal is recovery to improve their quality of life, that's what you want to support them on as well. You want to get them along that path to enter eventual abstinence because we know that abstinence is ultimately is the ultimate form of harm reduction, mm-hmm. right? But mm-hmm. 20% of our population who lives with addiction can never reach that. There's that number 20 again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 20% of our population will never reach absolute abstinence. Right, so there has to be supports for everyone. It's not a one one size fit all solution. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 you really recovery and harm reduction are part of the same continuum. It's a continuum, not not one or the other. They're not dichotomous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How? Um, so I'm just I'm curious. Mm-hmm. Like, so when you when you say that that twenty percent of our population will not achieve abstinence how who came up with that number it's uh, these are done from epidemiological studies okay um so i think uh in bc they did a few i remember i had to figure out where exactly this quote came from yeah uh, but it's in the literature and 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 10 to 20 percent depending on what study you look at yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, can never reach complete abstinence off of their substance Wow. Um, 
and and no matter how hard they try, they might re, you know achieve periods of recovery, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but then they relapse. But again, recovery also is defined differently, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's it's you know people define recovery in different ways. Uh, someone might believe that recovery is complete abstinence. Some mm-hmm. people believe that recovery is just being healthy and still using. Mm-hmm. Right, so there we have people who are out there who uh, who used to have problematic drinking, uh, but are still drinking now, mm-hmm. but are doing okay. They're managing. They're not. Uh, they're not binge drinking. They're not passing out and having blackout spells. Mm-hmm. They're enjoying themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, is that still recovery? In some people's eyes, that is, mm-hmm. and in some people's eyes, that's that's going against twelve step programming. And yeah. you have to have complete abstinence and, and therefore you're not in recovery. Uh, so it's again a very personal thing. Yeah. I, and, and, yeah. yeah. And as a provider, my goal is to make sure that the goal of my client is achieved, whatever that goal may be. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's what I'm there for. They're, they're, they've sought my help to make them achieve their best goals and be the best person they can be, mm-hmm. whatever that looks for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you, can you um so just tell us a little bit more about some of the other I I, I yeah. don't want to say them with in case you're not like allowed the initiatives to, and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, just some yeah. of the other stuff that you have. Uh, I, I mean one of the big projects were um like so so for COVID, for example, uh mm-hmm. in a in a harm reduction lens, one of the things that we're hoping for and supporting is that we're just providing education for clients. Mm-hmm. We're trying to make sure that uh, that clients uh are not sharing cups, for example, when they're drinking, that they're not sharing needles, mm-hmm. uh, not sharing the same paraphernalia, that if they're getting substances from their drug dealers, that that there's proper physical distancing being practiced and that things are being wiped down. And, and, and these are things that are practical things that you have to talk about with your clients mm-hmm. uh, from a harm reduction perspective. Those are things that we're working on from that. On the same token, things that we're working on is trying to increase capacity for things like detox, for example, mm-hmm. and trying to create innovative ways for detox. So this includes doing home detox, uh, which we're working on here in Alberta, in which we go out to the client's homes uh, and we uh, so that they're not in contact with large concrete spaces, mm-hmm. that they're not um, you know coming into a very crowded space, that they can detox in the privacy of their home with supports coming to them instead of them going to the supports. So that's a fairly new initiative, right? Like we're you were working on that before COVID though, weren't you? Like We were. It just got accelerated briefly before COVID before yeah. it got accelerated. Yeah, because okay. so of this COVID. is not like just a COVID because of COVID thing. This You're, is yeah. just a like a need that has been seen that needs to... That's been exacerbated by COVID, if you may. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, yeah. exactly. Uh, another one is the the virtual supervised consumption site or the virtual overdose response line, um, something that we've been working on uh, in Alberta Health Services with the government, uh, in which we have a phone line which people call. So is that active? Uh, it's it's hopefully going to become active fairly soon. So We're can in. you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, so it's it's an, a line in which um, people can call. It's a one eight hundred number. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, I'll, and I'll just to frame this: the co- the concept came in two thousand sixteen from a patient of mine. Uh, he was in Grand Prairie, and I was doing outreach to Grand Prairie virtually through telehealth. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, you know, he was on opioid agonist treatment and I was asking him, does he, you know, does he like, how is he feeling with his cravings? You know, is he going through withdrawal symptoms? Uh, and then I do my, my little bit of, of, does he have a Narcan kit? Mm-hmm. Uh, and are you using alone? Cause we don't want you to use alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we know that the most, the majority of overdoses that are occurring are 
are occurring when people are using alone. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, well, he has an Arcan kit and he's kind of using alone, but he isn't. And I'm like, well, what do you mean by that? Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, I FaceTime my buddy in Edmonton and we use together and Edmonton and Grand Prairie are fairly far apart. They're about 400 kilometers apart. Yeah. And so I'm like, you know, intrigued by this. I'm like, well, what does that mean? Like what happens if one of you overdoses? He's like, well, he has my address and I have his address. We just call 911 and, and send an ambulance their direction. And, uh, and, you know, I always say this, my patients are geniuses when there's a will, there's a way. Yeah. And uh, and so we just took that idea. We tried to industrialize it. We played around with an idea of an app for a while, uh-huh. uh, which a group in Vancouver is actually building right now, okay. something similar. Uh, but we decided to go with a phone line in Alberta. And what this is, is so it's a 1-800 number that you call. Um, you talk to someone on the phone, someone of lived experience on the other line, mm-hmm. and they monitor you virtually as you use. And if you... Um, if you don't respond to their prompts, mm-hmm. then Nablins gets sent your direction. And, uh, and you know, and we're just testing it out. It hasn't been proven yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're working with the government currently to sort of map out how this will look uh, practically on yeah. the ground. Yeah. And uh, hopefully we'll launch soon. We were supposed to launch in June, but we've taken a bit of a break just to make sure we have all our ducks in a row. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's coming soon. So that's another initiative that has also been exacerbated by COVID because the surface consumption sites are not mm-hmm. uh, at full capacity right now um, because people are using alone because they're isolating. Mm-hmm. Uh, the mm-hmm. need for a type of intervention like this has been um, escalated, if you may. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, and so we'll see how this how this rolls. We're 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 still working things out, and and hopefully it'll launch in the next while. Wow. Um, yeah, and so like the, that's yeah another initiative, and uh, the 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 last initiative that we're kind of working on at this time is recovery coaches, mm-hmm. uh, and it's an old concept. It's not new. It, it's existed in the states for twenty, thirty plus years. Uh, Will White, who's a famous psychologist who does a lot of addiction work, kind of created this, and it's it's all about utilizing people of lived experience mm-hmm. to help others who are suffering dealing with managing their addiction concerns, navigate the system, the complex system of addictions, mm-hmm. because we know it's, it's difficult to navigate. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, Venetia, I'm sure you have stories, uh, but, uh, but it's one of the hardest things that we hear from clients is that they don't know where to go to get help. Uh, and it's, there's often complex problems and barriers that they have to deal with. They have to deal with housing, Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes if they're experiencing homelessness, they got to deal with their mental health. They got to get on treatment. They have to see counselors. They have to get on income support uh, many times. And there's just so many things that need to navigate that it's hard for them. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to deal with their own triggers, how to navigate through their own triggers. And mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. concept of recovery coaches and pre-navigation is, is old. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's as old as 12-step programming with uh, Alcoholics Anonymous because mm-hmm. You know, this classic idea of a sponsor is there, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it really pivots the idea of a sponsor. Um, so sponsors are non-paid. They're, they're, you know, they're individuals who are in recovery, helping out other people who t- mm-hmm. attain recovery. Um, there's not a, um, there's not a defined role per se. Mm-hmm. It's a very vague role. Mm-hmm. Um, and recovery coaches formalizes it. This is your coach. This is who you talk to. This coach has walked the walk, mm-hmm. and now they can talk the talk. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, they've been there, they've done that, uh, let them guide you to what you need. Mm -hmm. So whether they need, you know, to get access treatment, whether they need to access open agonist treatment, uh, whether they need to access a physician for, um, I don't know, a heart condition that they never actually addressed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, these are all important things that, that, uh, that can be taken care of uh, with these coaches who, because they've lived through it, right? Mm -hmm. They know what it's like and, and they can help again glide these clients. Totally. I, I totally believe in the concept of recovery coaching, mm -hmm. recovery coaches. We, we use that even in Terminator so, yeah. too, like with, yeah, with our athletes and stuff and just the other athletes that have gone through the program and mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, I, it's, yeah, yeah. it's formalized mentorship and, mm -hmm. and, you know, mentorship mm -hmm. has been crucial for my career. Like I really rely on my mentors to help guide Absolutely, me. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, and when I've been in trouble, they've helped me through things mm -hmm. and it's no different than that. Totally. Yeah. It's, it's, and it's someone you can trust that you develop relationships yes. with. Yes. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, so, I mean, it's, it's worked in other parts of, of the nation. Mm -hmm. uh, it's being implemented throughout the East Coast of, of the United States. Uh, it's being implemented in Vancouver and Toronto. Mm -hmm. uh, and the evidence is really reasonable. Like there was a study that was done out of Rhode Island. Um, it's, it's not a published study, but you can still get it online. It's, and it's sponsored by SAMHSA. Mm -hmm. and, and essentially what they've done is they looked at recovery coaches and they found that uh, when someone showed up to an overdose, with an overdose in the emergency department, uh, and they were given, say, Suboxone, or they were told to go get treatment to the community mm -hmm. and given a referral to treatment to the community, only 30% of them would actually make it to community resources. And that's similar in Alberta. Only 20% of our population actually make it to our community resources for treatment for any addiction. Mm -hmm. They found that when they added a recovery coach who met them in the emergency department, talked to the clients, talked to them about recovery, and then helped them and helped guide them to their first appointment to the community, mm -hmm. Uh, that number went up to 83%, a huge benefit. Mm -hmm. And what they also found was that these coaches, they stay with the clients for over uh, up to a year's time period. Mm -hmm. And when they're engaged with uh, these uh, with these coaches, uh, that there's less, less chance of them coming back to emergency departments for emergencies related to addiction concerns. Uh, there was a huge reduction. Only 5% of them were coming back to the emergency departments, usually for things non-addiction related, and okay. uh, and they, they were doing well. They were progressing well. They were, uh, you know, they were being them best, their best selves. Yeah, if you may. yeah. Wow, that's all. So what? So what's happening with the recovery coaching uh, initiative here now? Like where in Alberta? Where, well, yeah, we, we've launched it? a pilot uh, in Calgary, uh, where we will be. We just got the funding for it from the city of Calgary. Okay. And it's, uh, um, it's we're hiring four to five recovery coaches. They're going to be based out of um, uh, out of the RAM Clinic, the Rapid Access Addiction Medicine Program, okay, yes, out of yes. Alberta Health Services yeah. and Adult Addiction Services in downtown. Okay, and um, yeah, they're going to be going to different uh, places in the community to help support clients to transition uh, to addiction treatment services, and they don't stick with them just between agencies like are they they're attached to the client not the agency is what i'm trying to say because mm -hmm. we know that our clients will bounce around from place to place yes. to place right they'll yeah we've seen the emerge department then they'll go to rent for recovery for totally. detox yeah. then they'll go to um to our facility in the community then they'll go to cups or the alex or they'll mm -hmm. go to um the john howard society or they'll interact with the cops a peer navigator or recover coach will be with them throughout the entire process 
So they'll be with them from, say, Renfrew. They'll help them get through the detox process. They'll help them while they're in treatment. Mm-hmm. If they're entering an addiction treatment facility, such as Fresh Start or Venta. Mm-hmm. And then they'll help them reintegrate a community after they're discharged from those treatment facilities as well. Because we know oh. that that can be very difficult. Absolutely, it can, yeah. yeah especially the first three months is yeah, what the data shows. Totally. And, and, yeah. So they're with them for quite a while then, because that all of these things, these steps that you're talking about, they, I mean, that can take a few months. Up to a year. Exactly. Yeah. And they're so there. they're with them for that whole time. Exactly. So is this like a paid program, like for these, even for these recovery peer support coaches like yep so we're paying them to be there okay uh again the goal is for them to and they have to have that lived experience piece. yeah yeah but they're doing other things too they're doing motivational interviewing for example yeah with clients um trying to get them to think about what they need to do to get themselves on track um hmm. it, like and, and by i you know i try to say on track by not being demeaning like it's mm-hmm. it's, it's it's you know like it's again meeting the client where they're at and getting the client to do what they want to do Mm-hmm. And so it could mean that the client uh, wants to be in a managed alcohol program. So let's do that. Let's get mm-hmm. you to decrease your alcohol consumption slowly uh, to a level that's supportive of you and your quality of life that you want. Mm-hmm. You know, let's get you to not, you know, let's get you some clean supplies so that you're not injecting yourself with dirty needles. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but that relationship, and we know this with addiction, people change their minds as to what they want on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Like some days, my clients, they want to keep drinking. Other days, they want to stop, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so the recovery coaches are there for every one of those transitions. You know, the day that they really want to get into treatment, they'll provide them with that access. Mm-hmm. The days that they want to um, not be treated, it's just a touch point to make sure they're doing okay, that their mental health is fine and that they're, that they're feeling supported. Mm-hmm. And then as a reminder that you're there for them if they need. Mm-hmm. I think that's so important. Like um, I'm just even thinking about the messaging, right? All the, like the, the messaging behind all of this, even, you know, mm-hmm. and because I mean, even just some of what you just said, like some days they want to be sober, other days they don't want. That's the that's the nature of the beast of addiction, mm-hmm. especially in the beginning, right? Like in when you're like when you are still really just struggling, like you're you're still kind of in it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's yeah. Uh, and and I mean like it, it's one of my favorite analogies with addiction is, mm-hmm. and you probably heard this before, is the water analogy. Have you ever heard this? I may have. Um, so uh, addiction works in certain parts of the brain, right? Especially the, the midbrain. Um, and, and our midbrain kind of deals with our reward system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and so uh, a classic way to kind of like it, it deals with our reward system in the sense of, of survival. Mm-hmm. So that's a, kind of the classic way of thinking about this. So we need food, water, and sex to survive, mm-hmm. right? And and our, our midbrain tells us that we need these things. And so when we're hungry, we crave food. When we're thirsty, we crave water. Mm-hmm. And um, and addiction hijacks that system. So the classic example, again, it's an analogy that I've heard over and over again that I love using with my mm-hmm. patients is that say you're on a desert island. And, uh, and you're on the island and there's no water in sight. The first couple of days you're building a boat, you're creating signs in the sand, you're 
you have a flare gun that you shoot up to the air mm-hmm. and uh, and you're focused on getting off the island. But by day four or five, you're without water. You're getting more and more thirsty. All you can think about is water, water, water. Mm-hmm. No matter what you try to do, all you can think about is water. Mm-hmm. And addiction hijacks that. Mm-hmm. Addiction makes you constantly think of the substance. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make you think about, or like the pleasure you get from the substance. Mm-hmm. You can no longer focus on normal things. Mm-hmm. And then if you're, if someone comes along, play, places a bunch of barriers in front of you to access water, you're going to have a tough time accessing the water. But if you have a guide to help you through that process as you're so fixated in water, then you're at a higher likelihood of, of coping and, and making it through. Mm-hmm. And so that's why these recovery coaches are so crucial. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that's that's a it's a good analogy. It's You've so heard that, hey? I well yeah, and or things like that. But that's um, yeah. I mean, the other part of the analogy is if if you know if you were thirsty for water and I came and approached you and offered you water, but I said you have to give me your house, your spouse, your kids, cha- trade everything in for the water, you would. Yeah. Because you're just so thirsty, your mind is not functioning right. Yes. You yeah. just need the water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, totally. Mm-hmm. How, um, yeah, it's, that's so true. Um, I'm just thinking about, because I, and I know you know this already, but mm-hmm. I, because I, I'm, I am a big believer in, rec- you know, recovery, obviously. Um, full recovery, abstinence-based, mm-hmm. stuff like that. But I also uh, totally understand um, uh, harm reduction. Mm-hmm. And I I believe that, well, I know even just with my daughter Eden, right? Like I always just go back to that story with with Eddie that, uh, I, so I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I, you know, just the, the messaging, right, that we are, the, that we're, that we're sending, that we're giving to people and, and things like that. And just to understand too, that sometimes we do have to sometimes cross over onto one side to be able to cross back over onto the other side, mm-hmm. you know? Um, yeah. Cause I, I mean, Eden needed Suboxone mm-hmm. to be able to, to make it yeah. right. But, you know, I mean, today she's in full, Full recovery, you know. So, so I just, yeah, I just think it's. Mm-hmm. Our, it doesn't have to be one or the other either. Yeah. Like I think, like opioid agonist treatment, like mm-hmm. Suboxone, mm-hmm. for example, it's becoming less and less harm reduction, more and more treatment recovery. Totally. Yes. And it's shifting, right? Yes, yes, yes. I have so seen that actually because when when we first got turned on to Suboxone, that was like almost four years ago now. You, you heart, no one even really knew about mm-hmm. Suboxone. It was, it wasn't even hardly anything that was talked about. Mm-hmm. And even, you know, the treatment centers and stuff like that, it was like the treatment center that Eden ended up going back into, which was ARC. She was the first client they'd ever even allowed at Suboxone, wow. treatment with Suboxone, right? And so it was like it was like a big learning curve for us. I I guess the the reason why I bring that up is I just cuz I I totally 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 understand you know the statistics and 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 everything. But I I also too have just I think sometimes 
you know, we just, because we don't know who's going to make it and who isn't going to make it, you know, and we were just even, just even the last few days, some of the stories and, and conversations and things like that. And I think that's so important to always remember and keep in the forefront that someone that can look like, you know what I mean? Don't even like that. They might not make it. They might not ever be able to live without a substance. So I just think it's so important to just keep to just be aware of that, I guess. Is that, yeah. I mean, going back to that water analogy in Suboxone, for example. Yeah. Um, you know, if I gave you water, you, your thoughts of water go down, right? Because you've quenched that thirst. Yeah. Yeah. Suboxone's the same thing. So, like, if you're going to a treatment facility and all you can think about is opioids. Yeah. But you're given Suboxone so you quell that thought. You can focus on the Totally. Lessons. You can focus on the, yes. you know, the, the treatment and the, yes. the discussion. Yes. And so, like, I mean, and the big hope is that all of these treatment facilities can eventually take on anti-craving medications, mm-hmm. whether that's naloxone, acamprosat, yeah, yeah, yeah. methadone. Totally, totally, totally. Just to assist exactly. in they that. Stabilize their brain so that they're able to take in all that important learning things you take in. Yes, absolutely, Monty. That's, yeah, I so agree with that. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think sometimes we need those supports, you know, to, to just get to be able to even make the next right decision, absolutely. you know, like, um, so what, so, cause you've been doing this work a long time, right? You've been in this field a long time, um, you're making me sound old. <laughs> no, well, I, and I know you're not, but I no, just, I'm joking. I, I just, I, I mean, so it's, you're invested. Mm-hmm. You're very invested in this. You know what I mean? Like, this is not just a paycheck for you. It's not just, this is your, this is your, like, you're in this, you're invested into this. Yeah, it's, it's part of my identity now. Yeah. And I, so what is your, like, if you can, if you're able to like take off your doctor hat for a minute and just as, as a person, as a human, as a man, as part of our community, like, what's your, what's your hope and what keeps you showing up to the table, even when it's hard. Cause I imagine you, you see a lot of loss. You, you probably don't win every, all, right. Yeah. You know, but you, you just keep coming back. You just keep coming back. And so just not as a doctor, but as. You know, it, it's the inspiration comes from my patients because they are resilient. Hmm. I see them going through so much in their lives, whether it's, you know, the trauma they faced as a child, if there was trauma, mm-hmm. um, you know, barriers after barriers, uh, living with homelessness, severe mental health concerns, uh, their days, their bad days, their, I'm sorry, I should say their, their, their good days are nothing compared to my bad days, for example, like, or mm-hmm. I'm not really phrasing that properly, but you kind of get what I'm saying. Yeah, like, yeah. They're at a different level. And so why am I complaining? Mm-hmm. Why am I giving up when they don't give up? Mm-hmm. You know, why am I deciding to, you know, step out of the arena when they're constantly living in the arena? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, 
you know, it's, it's, yeah, they are my inspiration. Mm -hmm. And it's almost foolish of me to think that I, you know, that I need to step away because they're doing it. They're, they're living it. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's what keeps me coming back. (laughs) I mean, if they're dealing with this on a regular basis, you know, me being there is a joke, right? Wow. So, yeah. What, um, if you could, <laughs> like, I feel like I did not say that properly. You, you, you said it just fine. No, you said it just fine. I totally, I, I totally get what you're saying, you know, especially when you're invested in this, you know, when you do see, you see a lot, mm-hmm. you know, cause I, I know the population of people that you're working with and I know how rough that can be mm-hmm. and how heartbreaking that can be. Sure. So I so. totally understand when you say like, you know, like I know it's important for us to take care of our, each other too, like and take care of ourselves in this work because it can be very, absolutely, yeah, very draining yeah. and, and just heartbreaking because it, it, it's relentless. 100%. You know, and so I, I totally get that. I appreciate that. Um, so what is, what, what is like, if you, if you could have, what's one message you would want to leave or share? And maybe there's several, but. Mm. About. Just about. To anyone that even might be listening to this right now, like that might be kind of vague. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think of the right things to to say, but you know, I, I feel grateful to be in this profession, and I feel mm. grateful to work with these people. Uh, and and I say that because again, there's there there what they go through is nothing what I've been through in my life. Uh, or sorry, what I've gone through is nothing what in comparison to what they've gone through in their lives. And, and, uh, and I, you know, I, I, I lucked out in life. I really did. I, I, I grew up with a family that cared about me. That was there for me to take me through things, uh, stable life. Um, uh, it's, that's not available to everyone. Right. Mm hmm. Um, you know, there's people who, who experience systemic racism. There, there's, you know, our indigenous communities, for example, mm-hmm. where I think there's intergenerational trauma that mm-hmm. causes concerns and issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've lucked out big time. So grateful that, uh, that I've been in this position that I'm at. Yeah. But, uh, but grateful for the clients as well, because they're, they're teaching me on a constant basis about what resiliency is and, and, you know, how to, yeah, how to make it through each day. Wow, Monty. Yeah. That's powerful. Yeah, really powerful. It's humbling. Mm. Yeah, it's humbling. I'm uh, really grateful for your time. Thanks for having me here. Yeah. I'm really grateful for your time and because I, like, I, I know how, like I said, invested and how, you know, I know, I know your, 
your workload and stuff like that. So I really appreciate you taking the time to be here and to just share your perspective and just some of the initiatives and programs and things going on and stuff like that. And, and I, and then just even your, you know, some of your personal, um, personal, uh, reasons for doing what you do, mm. you know, and why you do it. Well, vice versa. I admire what you've done and, and, and the message that you spread and you bring and, and the discussions and like, uh, this is a lot of fun. Oh, and, 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 um, I, I would love to be back at some point in time. For yeah. Sure. I'd love to have you back. Yeah. yeah thank you for already offering. No, no, thank <laughs> you. I'll be taking you up on that for sure. Sounds good. This was fun. Yeah. yeah I like this. Good. That's it's, good. It's awesome. Well, I, yeah, thank you for being here and I'll probably get some links and stuff from you. Sure. Uh, just on some of the, uh, articles and just a couple of things that you, um, mentioned and then we can have those in the show notes and stuff like that. But, uh, Sounds yeah, good. thank you so much, Problem. Dr. Monty Ghosh for your time. <laughs> Um, yeah. And so thanks everyone for tuning in again and for listening and, uh, hope you enjoyed the episode today. And like I said, we'll have, uh, we'll have some information in the show notes and just some links and, uh, you know, information on, uh, Dr. Monty Ghosh and the work that he is doing in the, in the community and the province. I should say. And uh, yeah, just thanks everyone for tuning in to the Ordinary Courage podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on the website, venetiabriel.com. We'll see you again. Thanks.